Since 2005, Blue Hat has been where the security research community and Microsoft come together as peers. To debate and discuss, share and challenge, celebrate and learn. On the Blue Hat podcast, join me, Nick Fillingham. And me, Wendy Zanoni, for conversations with researchers, responders and industry leaders, both inside and outside of Microsoft. Working to secure the planet's technology and create a safer world for all. And now, on with the Blue Hat podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Blue Hat Podcast. We are here with George and Rohit, and we're going to be discussing what Microsoft is doing with integer overflows. George and Rohit gave a presentation on an insider's perspective on integer overflow at CanSec West, and we're excited to hear all about it and dive a little bit deeper into that topic. George, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, thanks so much, Wendy. Uh, So my name is George Huey. I joined Microsoft almost four years ago now, which is really wild to say out loud. It feels like it's been a lot less time than that. So I graduated from the University of Maryland College Park in 2019. And yeah, for like a really long time, I knew I wanted to be working on on Windows security. It's always really interested me, really got me excited to wake up in the morning. And so now I'm here at Microsoft working on on Windows security. Amazing. So many questions, but we have time for that later. Rohit, want to hear about it. Introduce yourself, please. Tell us who you are. Hey, thanks, Wendy. Thanks for having me on the podcast. I'm Rohit Mote. I am a security researcher and I'm George's colleague in MSRC. We work on the same team. I joined Microsoft about three years ago. So George is definitely my senior. And I've worked for almost 10 years in various roles in security. My interests are mostly software vulnerabilities, which is what I look at during my day-to-day job. Awesome, gentlemen. Thank you for joining us. So you both presented at CanSecWest earlier in the year. The title of your presentation was An Insider's Perspective on Integer Overflow. And as as Wendy just sort of said, that's sort of providing some insight into what Microsoft is doing, particularly as part of MSRC, to address this category, this class. Let's have a quick little refresher, though. What is an integer overflow, and what's maybe a, a nice, simple example to sort of wrap our head around that? Uh, George, maybe is that a question for you to, to take for us? Yeah, I, I can start with that one. Uh, usually the, the way these works is I take the simpler questions, and then once we get a little further down the line, it gets harder, Rohit takes over. Don't listen to what he said about me being his senior. He's, he's really talented himself. All right, we'll cut that. An integer overflow is not necessarily something that's malicious by default. Uh, an integer overflow simply means that you know you're adding or multiplying to some integer or some data type, and you happen to supply too many offerings, too large of a value to that. Uh, and what ends up happening is you go over the maximum supported value for that data type, and you end up getting a much smaller value than you expected. So like I said, that doesn't necessarily mean that something malicious is going to happen because this happens all the time in our in our day-to-day lives. What happens when, generally, when something malicious is going on is generally that integer overflow breaks some sort of assumption that a developer has made. Whether that be the developer was assuming to make a larger allocation or whether they were doing a check to make sure that something fit into a specific size. Um, so that's kind of what an integer overflow is. So I was trying to think of a physical example or, or sort of a practical example of this. And I think I have one, but I, I, I want you to confirm this for me. So if I have a car, probably an older car with a sort of a manual or, you know, or an analog odometer that's measuring the total, you know, kilometers or miles that have been driven over the lifetime of that vehicle. And I drive it for 
ever, at some point, I'm going to run out of cylinders and it's going to roll over from, you know, 99,999 or something to zero. It's going to try and log that next mile, that next kilometer, and there's nowhere for it to go. So the whole, all the cylinders might rotate and they're now back at zero because it's sort of thinking that it's, it's, it's going back, it's going up again via another factor. Is that a good example? Yeah, that's a fantastic example. And, and it kind of underscores too what I was saying earlier, like, there's nothing malicious that happens there necessarily. What an attacker might do is, you know, after that has overflown to that zero value, maybe they then go to a car dealership and they're like, oh, I've only driven this car 40,000 miles. You should definitely take it, you know, and, and get a better value for it. And they're like, hang on, this car was built in 1937. That's not possible. <laughs> All right. So that's where the maliciousness happens potentially Afterwards, the inter driver flow itself is is somewhat sort of benign or, or could be benign. We had a more modern example too, George. I don't know if you want to talk about it, the the YouTube video thing for people who probably might not be as interested with cars. <laughs> yeah, what's that? Yeah, so we actually talked about this in, in the talk in Vancouver. Um, but I think it was it was twenty sixteen. I don't yeah. know if you guys know the song Gangnam Style by by Psy. No, I know the song and I can do the dance. <laughs> well, okay. I'm doing it right now. No. Thankfully, this is audio only. <laughs> People listening can't see this. So, so yeah, so it got huge on YouTube. And one of the things to know about, you know, the, the data types that YouTube was using is I believe it was using a, a signed integer, which means that its maximum value is 2 billion something. And what happened is it got so many views that it ended up going over that 2 billion number. And it overflowed. And so if you looked at the time, it looked like it actually had negative views because the integer overflowed and then that's the data type that was being used. It looked like it had negative 2 billion views, which obviously is, is ridiculous. And again, that's another example of a, a benign integer overflow happening because there's no way that someone could use that to exploit a server or you know get remote code execution or something like that. That's fascinating. So, But in that instance, that's a... Potentially, we don't know, I assume, but that's a developer who maybe just didn't assume that there would ever be a video that would go past whatever it was, 2 billion views, a billion views. And so when they were programming the app, they just didn't allow for that. Is that is it sort of as simple as that? Like they sort of didn't, didn't look into the future and sort of allow for such a, a massive number to exist? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I'm sure when it was first being developed, they were thinking, oh, we might get a few thousand views, right? Never at the scope and scale of what they're dealing with now. I want to know why Psy did not have another hit of that level. I'm, I'm disappointed. I'm waiting for it. <laughs> That's a good question. Yeah. Well, he probably did, but they all got all the views got erased because of the integer overflow. <laughs> yeah. So we don't, we don't. And know. I think now, yeah, I, I love the say, analogies. Like, I think Baby Shark has overtaken Psy now as the video with the most views. I know that because I have a daughter. I think. That's a great one, though, I have to admit. <laughs> yeah. So I want to dive a little bit further into the talk and go over, you know, if you could go over the abstract. But first, I want to step back a tiny bit. And I just wanted to know, I mean, you both have interesting stories on how you got to where you're at. Like, George, you've been dreaming of being on a team like this since high school. I mean, that's amazing to have that vision early in. Rohit, your dad taught you coding by using Logo. Um, I'd love to just get a brief touch on, like, from there to here. What what was your journey? George, I'll, I'll go ahead and start with you. Yeah, so I 
I really started getting into security stuff when I was a junior in high school. And we had we had a guy come into our high school. It was it was for a club called Cyber Patriot. With the Air Force, correct? Uh, yeah, I think it's the Air Force. So I didn't really want to do it at first. And my friends were kind of like, George, you're going to love it. Like, you have to do it. And at the time, I was really into a bunch of other stuff. And I was like, there's there's no way I'll, I'll ever have the time to do any of that. Like, I don't think it's ever going to, you know, be something I'm interested in. And then I, I started doing it. And so I had this mentor, and, and he was really fantastic. So, Rick, if you're listening to this, thank you so much. And he, he really got me started on a lot of this. I was just so excited. The passion was was really there from day one. And the way Cyber Patriot works is, you know, there's there's different operating systems that you work on, different challenges that you can be doing. And so I was primarily the Windows person for our team. And I really enjoyed doing that. Um, but, you know, we never got very far in the, the competition. You know, I only started as a junior, so I, I didn't have a ton of experience. But I really wanted to learn more. And so I, I brought that with me to college. And I started competing in the, the CCDC competition, which I really, really enjoyed as well. In CCDC, you get like a whole attack environment and you're playing attack in defense. You're playing defense as, as the blue team, um, but there's a live red team coming after you and trying to take over your assets. And that was really interesting to me, right? Because, you know, a lot of the time when you're in school, like it's a lot of these theoretical things. Like a lot of my family's really into math and it wasn't really interesting to me because I was like, how am I ever going to apply this in my real world in real life? But the, the simulations that we were doing was, was really what got me super passionate about it. So yeah, that's, that's kind of how I got started with it. I actually went back and I ended up mentoring Cyber Patriot programs as well because I, I like Cyber Patriot so much. And, you know, it's, it's a great way to get started and invested into cybersecurity. So I helped out with a team when I was in college. And just about a year ago, I started helping out with another team out here in Washington. And yeah, that's, that's how I am where I am now. I love it. I've looked at the Cyber Patriot program and I think it's just, it's great. It's a great way to get folks interested and, and obviously it worked because here you are. <laughs> Rohit, tell us about the turtle. Yeah. Um, wow. Listening to George's story, I was definitely a late bloomer. <laughs> I mean, I used to, you know, tinker around with computers, which is just a fancy way of saying I would play a lot of video games growing up. But my dad would always push me to, you know, learn some programming language and really understand how computers work, which I didn't pay a lot of attention to. But he helped me learn Logo, GW Basic, a bunch of other languages back in the day. Wow, life has come full circle because now I work in the company that made Basic. So I didn't think about that. Anyway, yeah, like I did my bachelor's in electronics engineering, which I wasn't really super good at. Even then, I would just mostly stick to programming microcontrollers and assembly and stuff like that. It wasn't until... I went for graduate school when I decided to actually focus on security as a specialization versus just generic computer science. And the thing that attracted me most to it was this course that we did in graduate school, which was looking at common software vulnerabilities and how you could exploit them. And that was just fascinating because up until then, I just knew you could write software. I didn't know if others have written software, which isn't as good, you can exploit that for nefarious purposes if you wanted to, or just academically, just to do whatever you want. And that really got me interested into security because it was so much hands-on and you didn't really have to know anything. You could just start from scratch and gain a very deep understanding of something super specific and super niche. 
So yeah, that's when I kind of decided, okay, I, this is what I want to do for a living. That's awesome. I love this story. I, I think there are many stories out there of fathers trying to nudge their children in a certain direction. I remember my father asked my sisters and I, you can either get a jet ski or a computer. We all chose the jet ski and he said, <laughs> wrong answer. We got a computer. <laughs> so I understand that uh, that path that parents are giving their children. I I, I definitely can relate. Well, the joke's on him because you strapped the computer to your feet and then dragged it behind a boat. So... <laughs> I mean, I, I got stories. I think some, some of that literally has happened. <laughs> um, so Rohit and George, let's, let's jump now into the session that you presented at CanSec West. So it's, again, it's on an insider's perspective on integer overflow. Now, we discussed what integer overflow is. We talked about how sort of by itself it's, it's not necessarily malicious. It's, it's a somewhat of benign concept. So George, why is integer overflows or why are integer overflows something that MSRC cares about? What is the potential risk here? How can it be leveraged? by a malicious actor or, you know, in some sort of chain where it now actually becomes a, a vulnerability that security folks would be caring about. If you could sort of talk about the abstract of the talk and why does MSRC care about this space? Sure. Yeah, that's that's a fantastic question. And I think it's also, you know, it's really important to kind of take a step back. When we're when we're looking at doing research, you know, we don't we don't want to start doing research in areas that aren't going to be really impactful. And so we want to make sure that we're making data-driven decisions, and we're being smart about where we're looking. And so, you know, I think Rohit and I were looking at at the numbers for integer overflow bugs. And one of the great things about working for MSRC is we have so much data from Windows, and that's that's really, really helpful, and, you know, other products that Microsoft develops. And we have a fantastic researcher community base that's looking into these these products and looking for these types of issues. So Windows is primarily written in C and C++, and as any product in C and C++ goes, the number one vulnerability class is memory safety issues. And so actually, if we we dive a little bit deeper into memory safety issues themselves, you'll find out that the number one root cause of memory safety issues right now in MSRC cases is due to integer overflow vulnerabilities. So this is something that's being used. It's something that's really seeing a lot of, of traffic from researchers from our community and you know we're also finding things internally uh, so it really underscores the point like we have this huge number of integer overflow vulnerabilities coming through and that's something that we really want to focus on and, and try to drive down as as we can moving forward because that's the number one way that we can help to protect people so i'm kind of speaking for my team here but I think we're all really passionate and driven about protecting people as best as we can. And that means going after these number one bug classes like this. So that's fascinating. So just to sort of reiterate what you, what you just discussed. So you guys sit in MSRC, part of being a part of MSRC, and that's that's the Microsoft Security Response Center that both Wendy and myself, we all, we all work for. But you get access to these massive, massive tranches of data, anonymized data. But in this case, you can sort of see when there are submissions from the researcher community that are memory safety issues. You can then sort of, you know, pass or, or, or search through those submissions, get more data, and you can find out what the root cause is. And in this case, you're saying that one of the, one of the main root causes is 
something as I'll say as simple, not that it's simple, but it's but it's something as sort of simple, maybe in a in a rudimentary sense, as the concept of an in- integer overflow. And obviously, it's it's much more complicated than that. But that's what happened. The two of you went, okay, we need we need to go focus on something. We're going to try and do some research to to make things safer and try and mitigate some bug classes. Let's look into the data, and it all boiled down to integer overflow. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I, I think he also made a really good point there. Is that you know, a lot of time researchers think that after they've submitted to us, you know, we just fix the bug and we move on. But that's really not the case. Microsoft is constantly working to improve its products where we can. And, you know, one of the ways is is by just aggregating all of this data and looking for places that we know we need to work on. I just want to touch on the root cause. Rohit, you had mentioned that it's not a requirement, but it would be nice, nice to have for researchers to identify the root cause. So, it sounds like it's a simple root cause, but it isn't simple. Oh, yeah, definitely not. We have trouble accurately root causing it sometimes, even ourselves, because it's very nuanced. So at the surface level, you do understand it's an issue, which our finders do. And the external researcher community, when they submit bugs, they do root cause it. They, they do a great job for the most part. But specifically, the challenge with bugs like integer overflow, like this particular category that we're talking about, is it's often easy to confuse it with other categories of bugs. Even inside of integer overflows, there's so many other complexities on what kind of integer overflow it is, signed integer overflow, unsigned, truncations, without going too much into the weeds. It's just, there's various categories, right? And it's not as straightforward always, but when we do receive these cases and submissions within MSRC, we do a deep dive because accurately classifying them helps us come up with strategies to fix them at scale, right? Versus just one-off fixing, which we obviously do, which is create a patch as soon as we get a bug. But when we do the kind of research that George and I do, which is to explore ways to categorically mitigate this bug class, it's always good to have really specific nuanced root causes. So yeah, one of the things we were talking about before was it would be great if finders just played around a little bit more specifically with this bug class. It helps them send in a really good quality submission and it helps us doing the first level engineering triage to figure out what the problem is. Having said that, I do understand it isn't as simple and sometimes it just it is what it is. You have to just spend the time and figure out what it is. Awesome. What are some of the case examples where integer overflow were the cause of whatever or leverage for whatever is a stepping stone to something else? There's tons of examples out there, to be honest with you. One of the really big examples that we talked about in our, in our talk was the Eternal Blue exploit, uh, which happened, I think, back in... I'm not sure exactly when that was, 2016, 2017, somewhere around then. So that was actually a couple of different issues, but one of them was integer overflow. And so that really underscores the point, like, you know, integer overflows are used in the wild. Uh, they're used in the real world. And so it's it's important to, to focus on them and, and to fix them where we can. Yeah, another great example was DNS SIGRED. Also back in the day, I forget exactly when, 2015 probably, but it was also, I believe, exploited in the wild and an integer overflow issue. So there definitely have been a bunch of high-profile um, vulnerabilities, which are basically integer overflow issues. And in these examples, is the integer overflow then chained together with something else? 
to actually land some sort of attack or takeover, or is the integer overflow itself is somehow being sort of weaponized? Because we did talk about it being sort of relatively benign or potentially benign. So what made Eternal Blue or Sig Red or some of these other cases, what made the integer overflow itself a vulnerability or sort of an issue that caused so much mayhem or havoc? Yeah, so I, I touched on this a little bit earlier, but we can we can go into some more depth now. Please. When an integer overflow happens, like we said, you know, it doesn't necessarily lead to vulnerability right away. But a lot of the time, some assumption that a developer made is broken. And if they're using that assumption to securely write code in the future, that's when you can run into a problem. So we actually go into the different, there's like six different categories that we go into in our talk. I can go over, I think, two or three of them really quickly because they're fairly simple. One thing that's very common across code bases is to allocate memory for some number of structures that an attacker provides. What we want to do is because we're allocating this memory, we have to calculate how much memory do we want to allocate. And so generally that happens with the multiplication. We'll take the number of objects that we're trying to allocate and multiply it by the size of those objects. And what can happen is if, if one of those numbers is very large or both of those numbers are very large, you can overflow the size that's being passed to an allocation function. And when that happens, you end up actually allocating a lot less space than you were originally expecting to. And this is a really, really exploitable condition because when you end up allocating not enough space, you almost always end up writing into that allocation and writing past the end of the buffer that you just allocated. So that's one of the largest categories of integer overflows that we see. We call those size overflows internally, just to make it you know a little easier to deal with. Another really common source of integer overflow vulnerabilities is what we refer to as integer overflows in checks. And this happens when we're doing some sort of check on like an attacker controlled input, where we're trying to make sure that a size is, is small enough or that something is going to fit inside some buffer. And when we do that, all we're trying to do is, you know, some multiplication or addition to make sure that this attacker controlled size and length parameter fit inside the buffer. Um, but what can happen is an overflow occurs. And then if we do a comparison against some other size field, because of the overflow, the, the size looks much smaller than it should be. And that can lead to that check being broken. So those are probably the two biggest categories that we see. There are a number of other smaller categories, but, but generally we try to focus on those two when we're looking at mitigations work or more holistic work that we're doing. I know we touched on how if researchers could, you know, it's a nice to have to have, have them find the root cause. What advice or what are some, some things that you would speak to uh, software developers about? Like what can they do on their end to, let's say, shift this left and prevent some of this from happening? Are there some steps they can take? Are there things that you can throw out on this podcast that people can take back to their everyday jobs and potentially help with what you're working on? Rohit, you are nodding. I am assuming you're going to take this one. <laughs> uh, yeah, I can take that one. I think the advice for developers, at least initially, would be very similar to the advice for finders, which was root cause, right? Finders come in late. They're, they're trying to root cause how the bug happen and what the bug is. But when you're writing code, it's always better to have a much better understanding of what each piece of code does. Again, having said that, it's it's really non-trivial. So sometimes things can go wrong. So 
one of the things that we advocate for from Microsoft is to use safe API functions when you're doing some sort of math, like adding two integers or multiplying two integers, right? And this ties in back to what George was talking about, about the two most prevalent categories of integer overflows, which almost always end up being exploitable and really problematic. So there's a bunch of safe RTL ulong add, for instance, and RTL multiply, these API functions that are on there on MSDN and various other resources that you can publicly look up that Microsoft recommends developers use whenever developers are writing code which operates on variables which they don't fully trust, like whose value is coming externally, right? And again, that's also a non-trivial problem, but it's a great pattern to kind of drill inside yourself while you're writing code to do these checks. So that's one of the things that developers can definitely do to write more secure code, especially in C, C++. Is that advice, Rohit, is that sort of more modern thinking or more modern approach to software developing? And I guess I guess what I'm trying to ask is the folks listening to this podcast that do write software, are they making obviously they're making choices on how to implement something, but are they going to need to sort of weigh up using these safe API calls versus some other method for adding integers together? And, and, and therefore, like, you know, do we need to go through some education or what needs to happen to ensure that this happens more, more prevalently? Yeah, I think definitely more education is part of it. Like when you have picked up a programming language as your choice for writing code in, you need to be aware of what the pitfalls are. And as part of learning how to write good code in that, you need to look up what are the best practices and recommendations, right, from official sources, of course. So the one way is using these safe APIs to do stuff in The other way is rolling in your own checks, right? You can write code that does the same checks as the API, but it's sort of an advanced thing. And I wouldn't really recommend it unless you fully understand what you're writing, right? Like generally as as much as you can, it's better to use official guidance and these safe APIs that Microsoft already publishes. So yeah, I mean, education is definitely a big part of it. The other problem that kind of comes in here is there is a lot of existing code that's already out there that's been written and is kind of legacy code that you have to maintain. And that's where you have to have methods of detection and scanning to figure out what issues already are dormant in your code. Another recommendation that we absolutely give to developers where you can is choose safer programming languages than C and C++. Like we said, the number one cause of issues right now for Windows and and Office is memory safety issues. And while Rust would not categorically defeat all of those, it would get rid of a pretty significant percentage of those memory safety issues. So there's definitely, you know, safer programming languages, safe alternatives out there to C and C++ that are just as fast, have just as many benefits. And just to add on to this a little bit, you know, there's the advice of what software developers can do to help on that end. But what is MSRC doing to address this and mitigate this class? I'll get us kicked off with this one. We actually kind of have a two-pronged answer to this. And it's it's kind of why you know, Rohit and I are working on this together. So I'll start actually with, with Rohit's piece of this, which is he's working on a mitigation to help get rid of one of these classes of integer overflow vulnerabilities. So that's you know going to take some time. Developing a mitigation is a, is a pretty hefty cost. 
but also there's, you know, a lot of app compatibility tests and things that have to pass and lots of stuff that has to go through before we can release something in Windows. So in the meantime, while we're waiting for this mitigation to come out, we're also doing a lot of work internally to help identify some of these vulnerabilities before they go out or before, you know, some, some public threat actor does. And generally what happens is, you know, we have this, this gigantic researcher community base that really does a fantastic job of looking for and finding issues throughout the code base. But we do have some, some advantages inside of MSRC that really help us to look for trends across the code base. So one example we'll give of this is, you know, imagine there's some like copy pasted code from one component to another component. Well, for us, it's really simple to tell that some code was copy pasted. But for an outside external researcher, they might find this issue and spend a lot of time, you know, developing a working proof of concept to demonstrate this issue. But then they won't know that it exists in some other component. Another example is like, what if something is in an inline function somewhere? And that's, you know, a lot harder for a, a researcher to go out and find because they don't have access to source code. So the whole point here is that since we do have access to source code and since, you know, we have experts in these spaces, we have a pretty significant leg up that helps go around and look for variants of the kinds of things that researchers are submitting. And that really helps us to really broaden our, our perspective and also broaden the impact that MSRC can have when, when, you know, writing a fix or figuring out some remediation plan. We had a previous guest, Cameron Vincent, who originally was a researcher, and now he's on the Microsoft side. And he, it's kind of similar, like you said, there's an advantage, there's, it's, it's eye-opening to be able to see the whole picture versus as a researcher, you're just seeing a, a snippet of it. So hearing you say that is, it is interesting because I hadn't thought in that way until, you know, having these conversations and realizing, yes, like the researchers do only, they can find just what they can find, but you know, we have the advantage, companies have the advantage of just seeing the whole landscape and being able to make the fix based on that versus, you know, the, the one little piece that they're seeing. It's interesting. Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, when I first got to Microsoft, one of the first things I did was I, I pulled up all the TCP IP code and I was like, oh, I really want to look at all this because I've worked with so much of that before in, you know, in, in college and in high school. So it was just really interesting to me to get to see how everything was actually, actually coded and actually made up. It was, it was super cool. That's awesome. Sort of a similar thing with me. Before joining Microsoft, I was working for almost 10 years in various roles. And whenever we would look at Microsoft products, we would just, you know, reverse engineer the code because we didn't have the source code. And it's much harder to do that in assembly, right? Like it, it still makes sense, but not really. And one of the first things that I did when I joined Microsoft was just load up the source code and look at just various kernel functions. I, I looked at all the bugs that I had reported to Microsoft over the years. And I wanted to look at them in source and look at the fix and just, you know, kind of giggle at like, yeah, I, I did that. I made you rewrite that code. So yeah, it, it was amazing. Ooh, say, say more about that, Rohit. So it sounds like <laughs> like Cam, we talked about just then, you also have a history of a, of a finder and a, and a researcher. What can you tell us about your pre, pre-MSRC days? Yeah, I would submit to Microsoft via iDefense, this was like a competitor to ZDI, where I was working at before, another bug bounty broker, like they would acquire research from finders and send it to Microsoft, uh, very similar to ZDI. So yeah, I had uh, the opportunity to find a couple of bugs in the Windows kernel and um, some other components. 
so yeah, it, it was great, but it, it's much harder doing that. And I, I feel like year over year, as we're adding more protections, more mitigations, the, the, the playing field has become that much more harder, at least in the space that I am, which is software vulnerabilities and you know low-level stuff across Windows. It's just harder. Like I don't know, after having spent three years in Microsoft, going back, let's say if I were to ever leave and just join in as a researcher who doesn't have access to source code, that would be so much harder. So I want to ask a, a silly question, but maybe bear with me on this one. If the concept of you know integer overflow is is has been around for such a long time, if MSRC has been working on this problem for a long time, if the developer and engineering community have been aware and working on this for such a long time, why do they still exist? Do we have a, a theory on that? Can it be boiled down to an idea, or you know, is there a culprit, or is this? Is this just one of those sort of long-lasting challenges that is just going to stick around? Is there is there hope for a complete mitigation of, of integer overflow, you know, somewhere in the future? I think the larger problem is memory safety issues, of which integer overflow issues are a subclass. And memory safety issues have been around forever, for as long as C and C++ have existed. This is, well, hopefully one day we'll get rid of it, but this is so like entrenched in the programming language and just tons and tons of code that we already have written and are still writing, in spite of our best efforts, there's still bound to be issues as we've seen like time and again, right? And we're doing whatever we can from our side in terms of adding more mitigations in the platform and system to make better software. But kind of tying back to what George said, I think eventually maybe the way forward is a safer programming language. Now, I don't know, It's this is sort of like a controversial take. I don't know if Rust or some other safe programming language would completely replace these memory unsafe languages like C, C++, or maybe there will be some balance, but that seems to be the way forward. Like that seems to be where the industry is growing. And like Microsoft has a big push towards adopting Rust really long-term, right? So I think there's hope, but I don't exactly know how the future is going to look like. Like, would Rust or something similar replace C++ entirely as being the system's development language of choice? Or would they exist in some sort of harmony and, you know, C and C++ would have their own protections uh, built in? So one thing that I will add is I think it's really important that we started this conversation out by saying a lot of integer overflows are benign and they don't lead to anything that an attacker can actually use. And the problem with anything that, that is benign is that developers will rely on it. And there are genuine real examples where we need an integer overflow to occur for whatever the, the application is doing to work. And so that makes it really, really hard to mitigate because how are you supposed to tell if, if something is benign versus malicious? It's, it's very difficult when you're just looking at it from a pure code standpoint. Yeah, great point. This is the challenge we have when, like George mentioned, right, one of the long-term things that we talked about as part of this talk was to mitigate the most prominent subcategory of integer overflows, which George kind of talked about, which we call size overflows. That, that's one of the challenges. We have to design something that adds checks in the code at runtime, but then we also have to make sure that we don't break legitimate code that relies on it for whatever reason, right? So it's hard. It's a very delicate balance. And, and we wish it was as easy as, okay, we're just stopping this behavior now and push that code to billions of users. But that 
it's not how Microsoft operates. We care pretty deeply about compatibility and not breaking users. I have a very important question. George, what kind of puppy did you get two years ago? Oh my gosh. <laughs> I was hoping this would come up. So I got a, a golden doodle. She's incredible. I love having her around. What is her name? Her name is Ellie. That's adorable. A few weeks ago, we actually we went to a Mariners game. They have a, a little event called Bark at the Park where you get to take your dog along, which I think is very well named. And it was it was a mess, honestly. There were so many dogs, not nearly enough space, but it was it was a ton of fun. I really like that. Awesome. Dogs just make everything better. In Rohit, I am sorry about the end of your hiking career. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah. We all lose something when children come into the world. I know. Yeah, we have a yeah two-year-old. So it's going to be a couple of years at least before we can get her on any hike, which is more than like half a mile. She doesn't even do half a mile right now. Right, it's not right. that she can. She just won't. She's independent. Yep. <laughs> and I want to hear about the book that you're writing, Poetry. You're writing a poetry book? Did I, did I read that correctly? I, oh, no, I'm not writing it. I wish I could. I'm just trying to read a poetry book in my native language, Telugu, uh. and it's just taking forever. Just because, I mean, growing up, I didn't learn it. Most of my education was in English, so, but I picked it up. Uh, my grandmother taught me, uh, and I picked it up later in life. So now I'm trying to get myself to read some classics uh, in my language. But, yeah, it's really hard. Like, I do a couple of passes just to get all the words right, and then I have to read it, like, ten more times to be like, okay, what did that mean? Right, right. That's me with a uh, interjection. Oh, nice. <laughs> what's what's the language again, Rohit? Uh, Telugu, T E L U G U. Yeah. And where does that come from? What's the historical geographic location for that that language being spoken? Uh, it's from uh, southern India, which is where I'm from. Yeah, it's a very popular language. I think uh, there's lots of folks who speak that language even out here in uh, the North American continent. How would uh, integer overflow translate into Telugu? Oh, yeah. Wow, that's a really good question. I have no idea. You know what? I would probably bing it myself. Well, we might ask you to write a poem in Telugu <laughs> about uh, integer overflow and we, we can publish that. with. The, Interesting the you mentioned that because I wanted to show my dad how chat GPT works and he was like, it sounds like a fad. And then I did exactly that. I made chat GPT write a few poems in the style of some like really popular classic poets in Telugu. And it spit out just in their style, like which was amazing. And my dad fully bought it and he was so surprised. That's when I knew, wow, this thing is legit, right? Like you would expect that to work for something like like Shakespeare or others just because it has so much data. But for it to be able to do that for a not very Western language, which I assume it doesn't have a lot of data set for, it was amazing how it just came out with those really legit looking poems. My dad was super shocked and pretty amazed. So now he spends like all day just playing around with ChatGPT. <laughs> no longer talks to you. Just nope. ask the chat GPT. <laughs> well, maybe we'll ask your dad to uh, to, to chat GPT a, a poem about integer overflow for us yeah. in, uh, in Telugu, and we'll, we'll put that on the... It's actually funny. Um, that's how George and I basically came up with the title of our talk. <laughs> oh, you did? You asked chat GPT? We did, and it gave us five options, five or six options, right, George? And then we picked one, and that's what got us accepted at Kansas Quest. <laughs> He's missing some of the story here. Somebody <laughs> fill us in, person came up with a fantastic title. Which is? It's kind of hard to say out loud. It's, oh. It really comes across better written down. Okay. Um, but it's basically A-A-A-A-A-A-A 
and then you overflowed my integer. What do I do now? Oh, it's it's a scream. It's, it's a scream. It's, it's a, but yeah, the joke is like a bunch of A's is what you usually use in like exploit development lingo, where you're like it's supposed to represent you're overflowing something. That sounds awesome. <laughs> we submitted it to the to actually to Blue Hat, um, <laughs> and we were unfortunately rejected. Our content is amazing. There's no way this shit got rejected. The only reason is because the title is garbage. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think your title must have over integer overflowed yeah. our uh, call for paper system. I think that's what it was. That's how I cope with Thinking, things. By, that's how I cope with things, by the way. Blame. <laughs> it's not my fault. It was yours. <laughs> then we had to go to ChatGPT to look for a, a more professional sounding title. So, so that's what we ended up with now. Oh, man. I got to get on the call for papers. <laughs> yeah, don't, don't, be, don't be disheartened. <laughs> I think uh, your original title was awesome. Um, I, there must have been must have been some gremlins or shenanigans going on for that one to be <laughs> to be missed. But I'm glad that Cansec West picked it up, and I'm glad you both had an opportunity to present it. We're sort of coming up on time here, so I'd love to ask, as maybe sort of part of a wrap up, maybe start with you, George. So, what are your big takeaways here? So, the folks listening to these podcasts, you know, they're they're possibly on the finder, researcher, hacker side. They could also be on the response side. They could be on the security development side. What did you learn throughout this whole process, and what do you want to distill this down to? Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things that I, I really want people to take away from this is how much we really look at researchers' reports. And it's not just the individual issue that we take away from, from some research that somebody's doing. We, we really take a look at these things holistically. We, you know, we have a fairly large team that is very frequently stepping back to take a look at the big picture and, and really figure out what's going on. And so, you know, even if you, you, you know, you don't think your research is as interesting, I, I promise you it really is. And there are absolutely people at Microsoft that want to see your research and, and want to use your research to make the product better. That's awesome. And, and Rohit would love your, your uh, TLDR. I think George nailed it. That would be my main takeaway. I, I think I'd really like to underscore what George said, which is we are extremely thankful to the researcher community for sending us, you know, really high quality submissions because that is really what makes it possible for us to look at what the problem is at scale and then design, you know, plans and mitigations for how to really tackle this sort of fundamental issue. And yeah, as George said, like at, at, at Microsoft, specifically within MSRC and our team, right, we're not just a response team that's just fixing stuff one by one as it comes. We have the unique opportunity to kind of step back and look at the bigger picture and then guide the direction uh, which the company should be following in, in terms of not seeing these issues come up again and again. So what is next? What are you working on next? Are there any conferences that you are going to be speaking at? And then additionally, is there anywhere online, do you have any socials or, or anywhere that folks can be directed to reach out to if they have any questions or, or want to just discuss anything that they've heard on this podcast? George? I'm, I'm still doing lots of research in this space. Still really interested in these kinds of vulnerabilities. Definitely want to talk to people, to researchers who are interested as well. I'm absolutely available on Twitter for, for any sorts of questions. I think the Twitter will probably be be posted with this podcast as well. And I'd, I'd love to talk about anything and everything Windows security. 
Awesome. Rohit, do you have anything to add to that? No, as George said, uh, we're still working on it, still deeply care about integer overflow issues. George and I take special attention in looking at integer overflow cases that fall into any of those two big categories that George mentioned. And I have been working on the mitigation uh, internally, developed a prototype for it. So I'm still like still lots of work to do to get it to production and enable it across the Windows ecosystem. So I'm working on that. Uh, no Conference is coming up where we have submitted this talk. We'll probably do a version sometime end of the year or early next year when we have some more progress and some more things we want to talk about. But yeah, until then, I'm more than happy to you know talk to folks on Twitter. Yeah, my handle would be posted on the podcast, but it's pretty short anyways. I'm just going to say it. It's at Rohitwas. That's my first name, W-A-S. But don't believe the handle. I still am on Twitter. Just I didn't get at Rohit is. At Rohit was, as in in past tense, is that? Yes, because like I wanted to get at Rohit is because it's a stupid thing. I, I wanted to sign up for Rohit is at gmail.com. That was my original email, but someone took it. So I got frustrated and I was like, okay, I'll take Rohit was at gmail.com. Oh, I, I got it. They both still work. Yeah, I think they still work. Awesome. Well, we will put all those... We will put all those links and those handles in the show notes, which you can find at thebluehatpodcast.com, as well as in your favorite podcast app. George and Rohit, thank you so much for joining us on the Blue Hat Podcast. Thanks for doing this great work. Thanks for presenting at CanSec West. And we hope to talk to you another day on the Blue Hat Podcast. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you for joining us for the Blue Hat Podcast. If you have feedback, topic requests, or questions about this episode, please email us at bluehat at microsoft.com or message us on Twitter at MSFTBlueHat. Be sure to subscribe for more conversations and insights from security researchers and responders across the industry by visiting bluehatpodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.